I'm going to speak about being filled with love, which I think is very apt given the kind of build-up that we've had to the message just in this uh, service today. So as Luke said, I've been um, a Jesus follower since I was a very little girl, and probably my favorite thing in the whole entire world that I can remember loving to speak about more than anything else is my love for Jesus and for his love for me. So this morning as I prepared, I know a lot of you have heard me speak before, and I sort of always end up speaking about the same thing, the love of Jesus. Wow, wow, that's why we come to church, isn't it? (laughs) But today we're going to look at being filled to the measure of all the fullness of the love of God, as Paul prays for the Ephesians at the end of of the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to look at this kind of filling in a bit of a different way this morning, and I'm hoping that the message will really serve as a catalyst to enable you to experience deeper and deeper levels of infilling within your own life. Many of you may remember a book called The Hiding Place. Anybody remember it? Okay, it came out in the 70s, but it was a book that recounted the story of Corrie ten Boom and her family, a family that fought the Nazi madness of World War II with the only weapon they had, and that weapon was love. During the Second World War, the ten Boom's family quietly sheltered Jews in their house until the Nazis discovered the hiding place, hence the name of the book. The family was arrested and imprisoned in concentration camps themselves. And in 1947, sorry, I'm a bit OCD. (laughs) In 1947, Corrie ten Boom, who'd survived the death camps, went back to Germany with the message that God forgives. And this is a little bit of her story. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was the truth they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I liked to think that when our sins were forgiven, that is where our sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, said Corrie God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not daring to believe it. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their belongings, and in silence left the room. And that is when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next moment a blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back in a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister frail in front of me, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been, concealed for, had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we had been sent. 
and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his outstretched hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he? I was one prisoner among thousands and thousands of women. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out to me. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it felt like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known the infilling of God's love so intensely as I did in that moment, the moment of pure forgiveness. I paint this picture at the outset of the message to remind us firstly that love is not a glib feeling, for the word love has been so watered down. And secondly, I paint this picture because Throughout this message, I'm going to play with this idea that love and forgiveness are one and the same. And we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail today. Richard Rohr describes true love as pure givenness. When a person or a thing is giving themselves to you, they are loving you. We all know what it's like to receive from another givenness. It's true love. We've got liking and loving all confused. C.S. Lewis describes in his book, Four Loves, how the Greek language has four words for love. In English, we have one. Storge is the love of things. Cute teddy bears, little kittens, a pretty cupcake, a gorgeous dress. Philea is the love that holds in its arms appreciation a valuing of the quality and beauty and truth of the thing toward which we feel philea. I love the beach like this, and I know Ethan loves the sea like this. You just love it. You value the quality of it. Eros is the love of eroticism. 
It's a physically embodied love, the kind of love which has a character of fascination and strange attraction, infatuation, which incidentally in Latin means false fire. It's the kind of love that we feel most intensely and get most burnt by. And then there's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13, agape. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Well, if you can just click over. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. It, didn't, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. Agape is this kind of altruistic love. It is given undeservedly. It is unmerited. It is unachieved. It is divine love that doesn't depend on the worthiness of the object because it is pure givenness. Givenness for its own sake. This is how God loves us. He has forgiven. Given before we earned his love, deserved his love, or could truly appreciate the dynamic impact of his love on our lives. This is the kind of love we are speaking about today. It is the love of pure forgiveness. We see this kind of givenness, this kind of truly altruistic love all over the Bible. Just one that jumps to mind is the story we read in Hosea. When Hosea first heard the Lord speaking, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a prostitute and have children of prostitution. For the people of the land commit great prostitution by deserting the Lord. So Hosea took Gomer and she became pregnant and bore him a son. I choose the most shockingly dramatic example of the love of God to give you a sense that God wanted to illuminate to Israel truly how much he loves us regardless of us. He said to Hosea, forgive your wife. Go and show your love to your wife again, although she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves Israel. Loving in this way a prostitute? Surely couldn't, God could not be telling Hosea to do this as, an, as a symbolic act that would illuminate for all eternity and for all humanity. It would embody the way God truly and perfectly loves us. But this is the exact illustration God chose a reminder that no matter what a mess we are in, he chooses us. He loves us. He chose us not because of our beauty, not because of our perfection, but because of his love. He chose us and he forgave us. 
The true love of God is vaster than the expanse of the horizon that goes on and on and on and on. It knows no beginning and it knows no end. There is no scarcity in the way God loves us. The Lord appeared to us in the past, says Jeremiah, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I was just reminded as we were singing about Deuteronomy 7, 7, where God says, I did not set my affection on you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of them all. But I set my affection on you because I loved you. Because I brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Therefore know that the Lord your God is your God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and his commands. This kind of love is a forgiving nature. It has a forgiving nature. And this is the kind of love we see throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament. This is the kind of love that is the meta-narrative of the entire of the biblical text. It is the meta-narrative of the entire of this Christian faith that we profess to. In this, it says in 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appropriation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we ought also to love one another. If we want to know how God loves, we need to look no further than the kind of relationship Jesus pursued consistently through his life and ministry here on earth. Isaiah had spoken prophetically about this life and ministry. And in Isaiah chapter 61, it really, really kind of pinpoints the life that Jesus would live. Listen to this forgivenness. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to those who are broken economically, to those who don't have the resources it takes to make it in this world. Those were the people Jesus sought out. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to those those to whom life has been extremely cruel and tragic, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, for those who've walked outside of the legal boundaries and been rejected by society, whether emotionally imprisoned or physically imprisoned, Jesus would bring these people freedom. To those who've lost hope, he will bring them out of darkness into light. He will comfort all of those who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion a crown of beauty instead of ashes, 
the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So much giveness. Givenness offered up front before it was deserved. Jesus filled people with this kind of love as he gave with a spirit of compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility. And as he gave with a spirit of abundance. Brennan Manning says, I could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than I can comprehend the wild, uncontainable love of God. Let's take a few minutes and follow the footsteps of Jesus into Luke 37, uh, into Luke 7, verse 36, to see this love on display. In verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would surely know what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, by the way, Simon just thought those thoughts. Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors went on Jesus. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more, Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were with him at the table began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives the sins of this kind of sinner? And Jesus looked at the woman and he said, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Once again, I choose a scandalous story because I want to make it abundantly clear that Jesus was about love first and foremost, in word, in deed. Jesus started with love for God, but inseparably linked his love for God to loving 
his neighbor, to loving the other, the outsider, the outcast, the little among us, the lost, the disgraced, the dispossessed, the enemy. This story that we all know about a sinful woman who was forgiven is the same story about a grace that pays the eager beaver who wakes up and works long and hard and who earns the same wage as the drunkard who shows up and works for 10 minutes before the close of business. This is forgiveness. It is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. This true love is sufficient though so many of us huff and puff with all of our might to try and find something or someone that this pure love cannot cover. But we will not find that person because God's true love is enough. True forgiveness is enough. This sinful woman who was hated by the religious was loved and was forgiven by Jesus. This sinful woman who was despised was loved by the good love of God. And Jesus filled her with givenness, forgiveness, true, unconditional, even scandalous love. And the story is in the Bible to mirror to us that this is the manifest love of God embodied on the earth in the body of Jesus. Why is it so hard for us to, un- to comprehend this love? After having spent so much of our lives experience a love that is based on compliance and performance, it is not strange that this is like contradicting everything we think about how people should be rewarded or not, or loved or not. Surely, against this idea of performance and compliance, God couldn't possibly lavish the entire of humanity unabandonedly and unreservedly and enduringly throughout all time. All humanity, with the same abundance, regardless of compliance to societal norms and performance. This is the very reason it is so hard for us to comprehend this love of God. It is literally incomprehensible to us. What is our normal experience of love? Even in healthy families where we know how love is defined, where it is clear, where it has boundaries, where, is it, where it is attainable, we find ourselves saying to our young children, if you're not a good boy or girl this year, you won't get any presents from Santa Claus. I mean, really, it starts that young. Even with the greatest intention to love our children with everything that is within us, We fail. We create shame. And that's in healthy families. 
Now let's move to shame-bound relationships. This is even worse. Love is a moving target. One day it's this, one day it's that. One day you've got it figured out, the next day you don't. Most of us know relationships to be things where we, when we do right, we feel loved. When we do wrong, there is a withdrawal of love, whether intentional or non-intentional. I know that I knew exactly when I displeased my parents. It wasn't that they didn't love me, but they withdrew something. I know that I do it to my own children. We withdraw touch from our spouses because we're hurt and we're mad that they can't read our minds. And we withdraw a smile from our friend because they said something that made us feel like a fool. So we look for love, we long for love, we try our very best to give love, but the bottom line is that we function, if this is our lives, we function in love scarcity. Our love tanks are never full. Some of us have a larger love tanks and then they feel even less full. But, you know, when we've got a love tank that's only half full, and we're constantly trying to get it filled up by looks of approval, by the, a stroke on the arm, by a cuddle, by performing, by arriving at work diligently every single day at the same time and working eight to ten hours, even though your boss doesn't seem to notice. We are constantly trying to get our love tanks filled up because we just exist in a worldview of love scarcity. And I don't think that there's a person in this room who wouldn't, at some level, agree with that. But oh, how countercultural Jesus was in this regard. So countercultural that it was scandalous love. Actually, it received disapproving stares by many of those who claimed that they loved God more than the small child on the side of the street. We struggle with the idea that God would choose to, so many times in the Bible, call out the prostitute, the sinner, the woman whose life is a disastrous mess, and love on that very person, embodying the love that God has for each one of us. Here is a revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus came for sinners. He came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the outcast. He came for the tax collector, for the person that had made squalid choices and had failed dreams. And he comes for us as executive corporates, street people, academics, teachers, superstars, farmers, prostitutes, addicts, AIDS victims, car salesmen, Jesus comes for all of us to embody to us the true nature of the love that God has for humanity. He comes to us. He forgives. He receives us at a place of need. And he soothes our restless soul no matter what the mass of mess we feel we are. Through my life, I've had the privilege of working with many different types of people. 
And for a long time after I'd finished my master's, I worked with many, many women who were living with the reality that they were HIV positive. This is a picture of Kabila. She was born in 1972 in a small village called Ndwedwe, outside of Durban. Her parents abandoned her when she was a baby, and she was taken in by another family, but was exploited both physically and sexually. She ran away when she was a teenager. She caught a ride to Durban, where she lived on the streets. She used to lie out her cardboard box every night to lie onto, but she felt at least it was better because no one was beating her. She moved through her teenage years, becoming more and more vulnerable to exploitation and abuse, moving from one man to the next as they promised shelter and love, but gave nothing more than violence and abuse. On the 3rd of January in 2007, Nkabele was diagnosed with HIV. She couldn't believe it had happened to her as I sat opposite her and said to her, Nkabele, you are HIV positive. For almost two years, she lived alone with that diagnosis. And she would often come and speak to me and often tell me how she didn't know how she could ever tell anyone of this desperately awful illness she carried in her body. One day I felt prompted, and I said to her, Nkabele, I want you to know that God wants me to remind you of his love for you. God loves you, Nkabele. He cries with you in your pain. Her tears began to flow. She said to me, I don't think anyone can love me. And as I began to pray with her, her shoulders relaxed, and her face took on a softness I hadn't seen before. It was like as if for the first time she had been released from something, but she couldn't quite explain what it was. Later on, I said to her, what is it that's going on? What are you feeling? And she says to me, I feel God's love. It's like I'm being consumed from the inside out because I've let go of the idea that I am unlovable. Are we filled with this love? Not just filled, but immersed. You see, the difference between filling and immersing is we can move into love abundance when we accept that God truly loves us with an expansive and unconditional love that is unreservedly given. And we can experience him. We feel him. It's there. But somehow it doesn't resonate into who we are as people. We know it logically, but it's like it can't sink into our hearts. And this is the reason why. That's dry. That's bone dry. Because the only way we can start to feel the magnificence of the love of God filling our lives is as we slowly let go. Then it flows.
So the question I'm left with, you know, we're all broken vessels. We, we are broken. We're broken by cynicism. We're broken by fear. We're broken by pain and loss, divorce, low self-esteem, abuse. We are broken and we do not experience this true immersion because we can't let go of the idea that we could move from a place of love scarcity into a place of abundance, love abundance, where we are constantly filled. But the second we start putting the constraints back on, saying, have you done this? Have you done that? <laughs> Just had my dad's voice. Have you done your quiet time today, Laws? He loved me, but it, it, it became like a, a stranglehold on me because then I felt guilty when I didn't do it. And all of a sudden, we just have to realize, and my dad told me this many, many, many times, you're loved. It's not about what you do. It's not about getting approval. It's not about how much you strive, how much you huff and puff. God loves you. The God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness. And those of you who've heard me preach before will know that I say this often. He loves you in the morning sun and he loves you in the evening rain. He loves you when your intellect denies it and your emotions refuse it and your whole being rejects it. He still loves you. We are broken vessels shipwrecked in the ocean of his magnificent, expansive, enduring love. And I pray that God would begin to show you where your false notions are around being conditionally loved. Because it's only when we begin to let go of these ideas that, that we have of what makes us lovable only when we begin to let go of those that we sink more deeply into the knowledge of the depth of his love for us. The height and the depth and the length and the breadth, it is incomprehensible and it is life transforming. It changes us from the inside out. It begins to transform our relationships once we truly experience the submersion. So now, I did look for a sponge that was the shape of a ship, but unfortunately I couldn't find it. But can you imagine just for a moment that this sponge is the shape of a ship? Okay, can you just imagine that for me? I'd actually love like a massive glass bowl filled with water with a broken vessel inside sinking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the ocean. Two things. The first is accept the fact that you are immersed in an expanse of love that you will never understand, but it radically transforms your life, and it is absolutely unconditionally given to you, regardless of what you have done. You are a broken vessel submerged in the ocean of his love. Secondly, while the vessel itself contains but a small part of the ocean. The ocean contains the entire vessel. Think about that. 
we will never fully comprehend this love. The extent to which we're able to let go of our ideas of how to become more lovable, how to become more worthy, is the extent to which we will sink more deeply into the knowledge that we truly are Abba's children, loved of God, beloved. But accept the reality that you will still only experience a small portion of that ocean. You're wrecked in it. Allow, allow yourself to be wrecked in it. But accept that you cannot understand it. The ocean contains the entire ship and millions, millions more broken vessels of whom we shall not judge how they are immersed in the same love in which we are immersed. His love engulfs you. And while our human minds are incapable of grasping the height and depth and length and breadth, you are absorbed when you sink a little deeper. Just let it go. The darkest thing that you have in your mind right now, the thing that you feel, if anyone knew this about me, they wouldn't love me. Jesus comes to you and he says, I forgive you. When we become people who accept the expansiveness of the grace and the love of God in this way, we become part of an, of an explosive movement of revolutionaries who are prepared to get up and stand up and say, I don't have it all right, but I know it doesn't matter. You don't have it all right. I know it doesn't matter. You're loved. We become a movement of people living out Jesus' challenge to us that by this will all people know that you're my disciples because of your love one for another. It's the most profound truth that the Christian message has to offer. If we were to sum up every single page of this beautiful, beautiful book that gives us stories that help us to grasp in little ways something of the expansiveness of God's love. If we were to sum it up with one word, agape, forgiven. Maybe if the band can just come up and we're just going to I've got a prayer that I'm going to pray, actually. It's the prayer that is at the end of Ephesians 3. And I think that it's just such a beautiful, beautiful prayer that Paul prays. And I actually ask us to, if you would, if you feel comfortable as the band starts to play, just kneel, just get out of your chair and kneel on the ground. And I'm going to kneel, so you're not going to see me. I'll maybe kneel up here. But I, wanted, I want us to kneel because I think there's something of just letting go. There's a, there's a humility that comes with kneeling before the maker of the heavens and earth who loves us completely unconditionally, completely unreservedly. 
And you know, when we kneel down, we let go. And that's what the, the, the symbol of the water and the sponge is all about. It's about letting go so that you can drop into a deeper immersive experience of God's love for you. Paul prays, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And I pray out of His glorious riches that He might strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray, and Lord, this is my prayer for everyone today, that being rooted and established in love, we may have the power together with all of humanity to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God in and through Christ Jesus. Amen.